The following sermon is by Boyd Johnson, pastor of Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. More information about Treasuring Christ Church can be found at tccathens.org. Ingrid and I got married, and 10 days later, we moved to Minneapolis. We didn't have jobs there, and we had never lived there, but we moved to Minneapolis because we wanted to be members of Bethlehem Baptist Church, which was at the time led by John Piper. That decision turned out to be one of the best decisions in all of our marriage. It was a remarkable church in many ways, with an extraordinary preacher. But what was so impactful to us as newlyweds was that we met so many couples whose marriages were a true reflection of the love between Christ and His church. It was a church full of God-honoring, Christ-centered, Spirit-filled marriages that really certainly weren't perfect, were lived in accordance with the Word of God and were exemplary. And so as Ingrid and I were learning how to be married, we had so many good examples before us to learn from. And I hope in the years to come, there will be many testimonies of newlyweds who come to Treasuring Christ Church and count it as one of the best decisions in their marriage. And I pray that they would find many marriages in our church to be worthy examples to learn from. And so as our church continues to mature, there is no better passage to strengthen our marriages in our church than Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22-33, to which we began studying last week. In this lengthy and profound passage, Paul commands both husbands and wives to fulfill their God-appointed roles within marriage. He says that in the leadership of the home, husbands are to lead with love. And wives are to submit to their husband's leadership. Now that was controversial and out of step with the culture then as it is today. In our egalitarian society, it's not a palatable message to say that husbands have an authority given to them by God to lead the home and that wives had a duty before God to submit to their husband's leadership. But these roles are critical in the marital relationship because the meaning of marriage is more than companionship. It's more than intimacy. It's more than childbearing. Marriage is a picture of the relationship between Christ and His church. That's the meaning of marriage. Now, we began last week where Paul began with God's mandate for wives. And he said in verse 22, wives... Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And we learned last week that a wife is to submit not because she's less valuable, not because she's less spiritual, not because she's less capable. A wife is in every way equal with her husband before God because she too is an image bearer of God. But she is to submit to her husband because God has designed men and women with different roles within the marriage. Equal before God, but different. A wife's role in the marriage is to support her husband's leadership. She's to honor and affirm his leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. And as she seeks to honor the Lord's command to submit to her husband, she's in fact submitting to Christ. 
And this will ultimately lead to blessing for herself and for others. Now, there's much more that could be said about that, and we can't review all the points from last week's sermon. But this week, we turn our attention to God-given duties of husbands. Look with me in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Well, in this passage, Paul turns to husbands as he continues to give instructions about Spirit-filled marriages. Now, compared to the brief instructions he gave to wives, Paul has much more to say to husbands. But the command given to husbands in verse 25 begins very simply. He says, Husbands, love your wives. This is the primary duty that husbands owe their wives. Love must govern all of a husband's relationship with his wife. Whatever else he does, he must love her. Now, in the first century, this would have been quite a remarkable statement. One scholar has said that in all first century Greek and Roman literature that has survived to this day, husbands are never exhorted to love their wives. This command would have been countercultural especially for those Christians who have been converted out of paganism. But even in the context of Paul's letter, uh, this command is unexpected. This is not the direction you'd think or you'd expect his letter to take, given what comes before it, given the context. Recall that just before this passage in verse 22, wives were commanded to submit to their husbands. Smit means that wives must come under the authority of their husband's leadership. And the reason for that, according to verse 23, is that the husband is the head of the wife. That means that husbands are to lead the marriage because they have been given a position of authority by God. And that position of authority comes with great responsibility. And so you might expect that when Paul turned his attention to husbands in verse 25, he would exhort them to lead, that he would say, husbands, lead your wives. After all, some men in their sinfulness neglect this great responsibility. But that's not exactly the direction Paul takes. Instead, he commands husbands to love their wives. And perhaps one reason why Paul exhorts husbands in this way is the, the nature of a wife's submission. A wife's submission is supposed to be voluntary and willing rather than forced and coerced. As I said before, the command submit in verse 22 is in the middle voice. We talked about that last week. It's in the middle voice, not the active voice, not the passive voice. If it was in the active voice, the verse might read, Husbands, subject your wives to your authority. 
Make them submit. If it was in the passive voice, the verse might read, Wives, be submitted to your husbands. As if wives have no role in the matter other than to let it happen. But the command is in the middle voice, which conveys the idea of wives bringing themselves into submission of their husband's leadership. Which isn't to say that submission is optional. It's a command regardless. But it is to say that a Spirit-filled wife should desire to obey the Lord and recognize that headship and submission in the home is part of God's good and wise design. But another reason why Paul commands husbands to love is that that is how husbands must lead. They are to lead with love. Love ought to be the preeminent characteristic of their leadership in the home. If it's anything, it's a loving leadership. In fact, husbands are held to the highest standard of all. The command given to husbands is a harder duty than given to wives. And the reason for that is the next phrase. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. God's high calling for husbands is that they would love their wives to that degree. A husband's loving leadership of his bride is measured by Christ's love for His bride, the church. And so we need to understand how Christ loved the church in order to understand the responsibility that husbands have to their wives. How did Christ love the church? If that's the standard, how did He love the church? What was the character of His love? Well, Paul answers those questions in the verses that follow. And based on Christ's love for the church, we learn how husbands must love their wives. And we'll see that a Spirit-filled husband's love for his wife is distinguished by three characteristics. Three characteristics that distinguish a Spirit-filled husband's loving leadership of the home. First, Spirit-filled husbands love their wives with a sacrificial love. Spirit-filled husbands love their wives with a sacrificial love. Notice how verse 25 ends. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. That phrase, gave Himself up, describes Christ's sacrifice for the church. What sacrifice did Christ make for the church? Well, we know that He died on the cross in payment for the sins of all who would believe. He died for the church. We deserve to die and suffer eternal punishment, but Jesus died in our place to satisfy the justice of God. And this is the ultimate self-sacrifice in history, and Christ did so willingly. It says He gave Himself up for the church. That's emphasized. He gave Himself up for the church. He did this willingly. Christ took the initiative in handing Himself over to death because of His love for those He came to save. His sacrifice was the supreme demonstration of His love for His people. But this was not a sacrifice of mere duty. Christ loves His church with affection, not obligation. 
And what a great privilege it is to be loved by Christ who loves us out of affection, not obligation. We can say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. You know, it's good to know that Christ died for someone. But it's far better to know that Christ died for me, for you, that it's personal. It's personal when He went to the cross. Not just a blanket covering of atonement for sin, but your sin in particular. He died for your sin. He loved you. Christ sacrificed Himself for us while we were yet sinners. He loved us when we didn't deserve it. He loved us when we treated Him as our enemy. He loved us when we resisted His authority over our lives and wouldn't call Him our Lord. He loved us in our most unlovable state. But He loved us with affection and sacrificed Himself for us. Husbands, you have been called by God to do the same for your wife. You owe her sacrificial love. You owe that to her. But this love must be a a love of affection, not mere duty. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He didn't didn't love us out of duty. He loved us out of affection. And so your love for your wife must be out of affection, not mere duty. Love is more than an emotion, but it's never less than that. If you don't have an emotional affection for your wife, you're living in unrepentant sin. And if you're living in unrepentant sin, I fear for your soul. Husbands, there are no excuses. Perhaps she doesn't love you. Perhaps she hurts you and never seeks forgiveness. Perhaps she has withdrawn her affection from you. Perhaps she has treated you as her enemy. Perhaps she resists your leadership in the home. But you are never more like Jesus than when you love those who don't love you in return. Your responsibility to her remains. Whether she returns your love or not, on your wedding day, you made a commitment before God to love her. And the promise you made to her was for as long as we both shall live, not for as long as we're both in love. Your commitment to her is not predicated on romance. Your commitment to her is predicated on your promise. A promise you made to her before God and a promise God holds you to. And so you must love her with a sacrificial love. You have a duty to lay down your life for your wife. As Christ gave Himself up for His church, a husband's calling in marriage is to die to self and give yourself for her sake. My life for yours must be the anthem of your relationship with her. My life for yours. You must love her and lead her like Jesus. He said in Mark 10.45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life 
as a ransom for many. That's how you must love her, by serving her even as you lead her. And so you must take primary responsibility to bear burdens in your marriage rather than unload burdens on her. When the money is tight, you make the greatest sacrifices. When the relationship is wounded, you pursue forgiveness and reconciliation. When something has to give, you humble yourself and give up what you must. To lead her with sacrificial love is hard. But men are called to do hard things. As we love our wives, perhaps our backs will get weary and our hands will get bloody and our brows will drip with sweat. But we make the sacrifices because it's our solemn duty of love as men before God. And so the first distinguishing characteristic of spirit-filled husbands is to love their wives with a sacrificial love. Second, spirit-filled husbands love their wives with a sanctifying love. A sanctifying love. In verses 26 and 27, Paul continues to motivate husbands to love their wives by describing why Christ sacrificed Himself for the church. It says, Christ gave Himself up that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now these verses picture the church as the bride of Christ. Christ paid the ultimate sacrifice for His bride on the cross. Now, why did Christ die for the church? Well, according to these verses, He died in order to sanctify His bride. A basic meaning of the word sanctify is to consecrate or to set apart for service. This term referred to any person or object dedicated to God for His purposes. So for example, in the Old Testament, God called upon Israel to consecrate certain common things in order to make them holy. Set apart things. Consecrate certain things in order to dedicate them in the worship of the Lord. These things included days set apart for worship. Animals set apart for sacrifices. Tools set apart for the administration of worship. Priests set apart to lead Israel's worship and so on. These common things were set aside, set apart, consecrated for the administration of worship. And so this word, sanctify, also conveys the idea of being made holy. When Christ died on the cross, He consecrated a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation as His holy ones to make a new holy nation so that all who trust in Christ are a people set apart from the world in service to Him. And so the true church is composed of all who have trusted in Christ and are now God's holy people set apart unto His service. It's for this reason that believers in the New Testament are often called saints. The word saint derives from the same root word as sanctify and literally means holy ones, those who have been sanctified. We weren't made holy by our own good works. Christ's death on the cross achieved this for us. 
By dying on the cross, His sacrifice made atonement for our sins so that we could be forgiven. And He clothed us with His righteousness. And we've been counted by God to be His holy people. All of this because of Jesus' death on the cross. But of course, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. So Christ needed to purify His bride. And He did so, according to verse 26, by the washing of water with the Word. This picture is believers washed clean and purified from their sin. And this happens by means of the Word, which in this case refers to the Gospel. Paul's using it in the same way that he uses it in Romans 10.17. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the Word of Christ, the Gospel of Christ. And so we have received cleansing from our sins through the Gospel. Paul says to believers in 1 Corinthians 6.11, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we who trust in Jesus have been set apart for God and have been cleansed from our sins so that such that our sins no longer count against us because Christ paid the penalty for us. According to Micah 7.19, our sins are cast into the depths of the sea. According to Jeremiah 31.34, God remembers our sin no more. According to Isaiah 1.18, we've been cleansed white as snow. This is what Christ achieved for us. A positional sanctification. The Old Testament sacrifice system pointed to this blessed reality. Their sacrifices demonstrated Israel's need to have their sin atoned for and to be purified from their sin. But what the blood of bulls and goats could never do, Christ did. Christ inaugurated the new covenant that God promised long ago in Ezekiel 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put in you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's called the new covenant. And what the Old Testament saints look forward to, we Christians have experienced. Christ made full atonement for our sin and cleansed us just as God promised. Now, why did He sanctify and purify His church? Why did He do that? Well, according to verse 27, He did it so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. This again pictures the wedding ceremony where the bride is arrayed in brilliant white and is arrayed in splendor and beauty. And the white dress signifying holiness. And so the church is the same way. This pictures the church arrayed in the beauty of purity and holiness when we are finally united with our Savior. On that day, the church will be unsurpassed in her beauty. The bride of Christ will be perfectly pure without any stain of sin. And He did all this because He loved His bride. 
And in the same way, Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Husbands, you must love your wife with a sanctifying love. God is the one who sanctifies. But your leadership in the home can lead your wife either towards holiness or away from it. She may know the Bible better than you. She may pray more than you. But you have a responsibility to be a sanctifying influence on her. God has laid that duty on you as her husband. And so you must take up this duty with earnestness. In all the ways you relate to her, be pure and set the example in your home of one who is committed to holiness in your speech and in your conduct. Shepherd her heart when she faces trials and encourage her to trust God. Guard your home from impurity and let no smut be found on any screen in your home. Lead the family in worship and help her to find time to be in the Word daily. Be steadfast in praying for her. These are just some of the ways, as a husband, you must lead your home so that you have a sanctifying influence on her. Make it your aim to help her grow more like Christ or to come to Christ if she hasn't come to Christ yet. This is your calling as a husband. You must love her with a sanctifying love. Finally, Spirit-filled husbands love their wives with a supporting love. They love their wives with a supporting love. In verses 28 and 29, Paul instructs husbands to treat their wives as husbands do their own selves. He says, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of His body. Now these verses echo the second great commandment, which Jesus said is to love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. If we love others in the same way we love ourselves, we will love others well. Now we need to make sure that we don't misunderstand that. Our culture tells us that many of our problems in life are because we don't love ourselves enough. But Scripture tells us that many of our problems in life are because we love ourselves too much. Our culture tells us love yourself first and then you'll be able to love others. You can't love others, they say, until you love yourself first. But Jesus doesn't agree. When Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself, note carefully that the command is not to love yourself. He actually assumes that. He assumes you already do. He didn't say love yourself because you already do. In fact, Scripture never commands us to love ourselves. We all by nature love ourselves first and most and seek our own interests. We don't have to learn that. It's part of who we are. And that's why Paul says in verse 29, no one ever hated his own flesh. But not all self-interest is sinful. It's not wrong in itself to desire food to eat, clothes to wear, a place to live. 
not wrong in itself to desire fulfillment in your work and to seek companionship in life and to be loved by others. But when that natural self-interest is motivated by sin, it becomes the poisonous root of our relationship problems. That's true in marriage as well. Most marital problems are the bad fruit of selfishness. Paul said in Philippians 2, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If husbands and wives related to one another like that, most struggles and conflicts in marriage would vanish. And so Paul is essentially applying the second great commandment of loving your neighbor as yourself to how husbands treat their wives. If husbands love their wives as good as they love themselves, if they love their wives as their own bodies, then there would be much more harmony in the home. Now, a wife is her husband's neighbor. But she is, of course, a special kind of neighbor. She is a neighbor to her husband in a way that no other person is. She is one flesh with her husband. Down in verse 31, Paul quotes Genesis 2.24, which says, A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. A husband and wife are one flesh. They have been united by God as one. So there is an additional incentive for a husband to love his wife, according to verse 28. He who loves his wife loves himself. Since they are one flesh, to treat her with love is beneficial for her and for him. Therefore, husbands should nourish and cherish their wives, according to verse 21, just as Christ does the church because we are members of His body. Those two words, nourish and cherish, are terms of affection. Elsewhere in Scripture, they describe the care of a, of a mother for her newborn child. In fact, down in chapter 6, verse 4, the same word for nourish is translated bring up. Where Paul says fathers are to bring up or nourish their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Christ cares for His church with this kind of tender-hearted affection. He comforts the church. He strengthens the church. He provides for the church. He protects the church. He values the church. And the same way, husbands, you must nourish and cherish your wife. When she needs to be comforted, comfort her. When she needs to be strengthened, strengthen her. When she needs to be protected, protect her. And demonstrate your love for her as you attend to her needs and treasure her. You must love her with this kind of supporting love. And so the three distinguishing characteristics of a Spirit-filled husband's love for his wife are a sacrificial love, a sanctifying love, and a supporting love. Now, what Spirit-filled wife 
wouldn't want to follow a husband who loved her like this. Spirit-filled wives would find it easy to submit to a husband who leads the home with this kind of sacrificial, sanctifying, and supporting love. So wives, pray for your husbands. They may already know that they have fallen short of their calling to love you as Christ loves His church. Be patient with them. Be gentle with them. Be eager to forgive them. And husbands, rise up into your calling. You've been given these responsibilities by God. And though your sinful heart causes you to fail often in your love, ask God for help and ask your wife for forgiveness as you learn to love as you ought. And for all of us, whether you're married or not, let's be praying that our church would be filled with Spirit-filled marriages that reflect the beauty of Christ and His church so that as the children grow up in this church, they have before them an abundance of Christ-centered marriages. And that as newlyweds come to this church, they would be able to say, it was one of the best decisions we ever made in our marriage because we learned how to love like we should. Let's pray to that end. Will you bow your heads with me? Father, this is a challenging passage. We know challenging for wives to hear, submit to your husbands. It's challenging for husbands to hear, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And yet you've given us who have your Spirit. You've given us your Holy Spirit to empower us to live as you've called us to live. And though we fall short, and though we confess our sin and repent to of, of that sin to You, You have given us the ability and the will to follow after Your Son and do what we're called to do. Father, we ask that You would strengthen the marriages in this church. We ask that as the marriages are strengthened, they would become beautiful portraits of the relationship between Christ and the church. Lord, help us to be faithful in these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Treasuring Christ Church in Athens, Georgia. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not alter the content in any way without permission. Treasuring Christ Church exists to spread a passion for the fame of Christ's name in Athens and around the world. We invite you to visit Treasuring Christ Church online at tccathens.org. There you'll find other resources available to you and information about our upcoming gatherings.